Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Dip Patel to the show. Dip Patel is a technologist, engineer, and entrepreneur. He is currently the chief technology officer of Saluna, a company aiming to make stranded green energy profitable using off-grid high-density computing. Before Saluna, he was a co-founder of EcoVent, a smart home technology company sold to ConnectM in 2016. Dip, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Exciting times. Dip, Dip, it is exciting times. And you're the first time I've had a second representative from the same company. I interviewed John last year, Saluna Computing, episode number 184, back in February of 2022. But before we dig into Saluna and your role there, I want to ask you a question about a quote I came across that was advice to you. And I think it's very relevant to our conversation, so I'm going to say it. Earning money to mask unhappiness. What can you share about that? Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> that's an interesting question. Um, I would say that, you know, and this is biased because I've been raised a certain way, right? Grew up a certain way. So I'm an immigrant uh, that came to America very young. and you know, as an immigrant that comes to America, the, the number one thing that you're worried about is is making sure you make money, right? Um, and I think that as a result, a lot of optimization happens subconsciously or consciously around career <laughs> choices and life co- choices that start to optimize for money versus mm-hmm. other things. And later in life, especially when I went to business school, I think is when I started to realize that wow, um, there's a whole other axis, right? There's the capital, which is the money, but there's also the learning axis and they're not always necessarily in sync, right? Mm -hmm. If I optimize for learning and happiness versus just purely capital, usually the money will follow, right? And so, Mm -hmm. whereas if you you take a job or do stuff that makes you a lot of money, um, you might be doing that job purely to make the money. And as such, that time that you spend doing the job is not satisfactory time other Mm -hmm. than you're making money to enjoy the rest of your time, right? I'd rather enjoy all of my time. (laughs) (laughs) And and the reason I ask that is because I think your past is really relevant. And and I'll just give you a quick overview of why. You know, you were an entrepreneur company called EcoVent. I'd like to learn a little bit more about it. But before I do, I feel like in my journey, so number one, we're brothers on the journey. I'm also an immigrant to the country. You're, you're right about optimizing for money and then perhaps learning lessons later. But I feel like when entrepreneurs become part of organizations like you are for Saluna right now, you bring a more holistic view of the business. 
rather than having a siloed approach. So for example, you're a CTO, you could be very much focused on just a technical aspect, but your previous experience as an entrepreneur gives you a 30,000 foot view of how you and your role affects the broad organizations. Whereas many a time when I speak to people that are in large companies, you know, they come from perhaps an MBA background or marketing background, finance background, and they're not quite sure as to how their duties and their roles actually affect the broader the broader picture, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, when I was at Lockheed, I was in a leadership program, right? When I first started. Mm-hmm. And so right out of undergrad, I joined this company, put in a leadership program. And as a result, you're given a lot of things that most employees at Lockheed might have to seek out, you know? And because I was given these things and I didn't have to seek them out, it kind of accelerated my maturity, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember I had this mentor early, early in, I had a couple of mentors early in my career that had a huge impact on my decision-making at Lockheed. And this mentor, um, oh man, I still remember the conversation. He, he basically told me that when you come to a company like Lockheed or any large company, it's very easy to forget how a little widget or a piece that you're working on matters to the to the overall scope of the mission, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and at Lockheed, that's not good because you know it's one of the things that Lockheed does as a, as a value proposition to its employees is to remind you that we never forget who we're working for, right? That's this. Uh, I don't know if it's still the tagline, but. Basically, the idea was you understand that all of the work that you're doing ultimately is going to find its hands, its way into the hands of somebody in a dangerous situation, right? And understanding how that work, how your work played into the overall systems was an experience I was given early on in my career solely out of pure luck of being in this leadership program. I had so many other brilliant engineers that I worked with that never got that experience. And when I would sit with them and work with them, uh, I learned that they never really understood, you know, how this filter, this this amplifier they're working on really mattered to the mission, you know? And then uh, actually learning that, we, we created a, a curriculum called Top Gun at Lockheed to help kind of show engineers that broader scope to understand, you know, the forest through the trees a little bit, um, to help you zoom out. It also allowed you to get a high degree of respect for all of the different functions in an organ. I really like that. I like that idea of respecting all the functions, they say, all the way from the janitor to the CEO. There's a story at Lockheed. You know, uh, Lockheed used to build the uh, the space shuttle tanks, like the fuel mm-hmm. tanks. And when it was in the final stages of, you know, like engineering and design, they were having trouble stripping some some amount of weight, right? Some uh, Some weight from this uh, tank. And the program manager of the job to clear his head, they had a whole, you know, week long, what they would call Kaizen, mm-hmm. like, you know, a tiger yep. team, whatever. They use all these. The uh, Japanese process, right? Yeah. Yeah. They have all these amazing processes in place. And uh, the PM just took a break and started walking the production floor and started talking to one of the technicians working on the tank. And the technician said, you look stressed out. And the PM said, yeah, here's what's going on. I don't, I'm not sure what we're going to do. And you know what the technician said? He said, why do we paint the tank? Is there a scientific reason to paint it? Mm-hmm. And the answer was no. I said, well, what if you remove the paint? And that's what they did. They solved wow. the problem. Amazing. It's so important to remember that people are geniuses. 
just because they might not be a physics genius doesn't mean they can't build like an incredibly intricate piece of furniture like in their head, right? And once we start recognizing and truly appreciating what I, the words I like to say at uh, at school when I'm teaching is, or when I you know when I'm running my companies, uh, like uh, is everybody is LeBron at something, right? It's just some mm-hmm. people are lucky to find out what that is that they become the best at, right? Other people aren't, and if we start to recognize that everybody who has divergent thinking or different thinking is actually a massive, massive benefit, I think you end up making incredible, incredible leaps and in innovation for the world. I think it's an old African proverb or something. Everyone is a genius, but if you judge a fish by the ability to climb a tree, it'll live its whole life believing it's stupid, something along those lines. Whoa. See? It's every time. You, yeah, that's incredible. It's like the old Aesop's fables. I got to read those again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I briefly, I briefly touched on EcoVent. What I would like to know is the company, what it was about, and more importantly, what learnings did you take from there that you brought over to Saluna? Yeah, the company's purpose was to build a sensor platform and a system to unlock the building envelope in the sense that when you buy a house or have a building, you don't really know how it's working. You don't know if the windows are leaking, if there's bad insulation, if there's a bad air conditioner, bad ducting. There's a thousand things, right? Well, we built a sensor. We come from Radar, right? Me and the co-found, a couple of co-founders from the company came from Lockheed. And we built this sensor platform that could unlock the building envelope, basically tell you what's going on in the building. At the time, nobody really cared about that. The real use case that people loved was the ability to use that information to change the building. And the way we did it was we created these air vents that opened and closed. And what you could do is replace the vents in your house, like your air conditioning vents and your heating vents with with these eco vents, the ones we designed. And our control system would open and close them to either balance the house and make every room the same, regardless of where the sun is or things like that. Or if you're cooking or having a massive you know, uh, party, all of those things, the system would adapt. Or you can even do room by room control. So that's what the business was. Um, it was founded, you know, I, st- I when I was at Lockheed, I had a very entrepreneurial mind. So I had a bunch of ideas that I thought would be incredible. And then I, I, I came to business school at MIT Sloan to learn how to, the art of starting a company. I didn't really know how to do it. And I didn't, frankly, I didn't have the courage to just do it, right? I thought MIT gave me a really nice two years to figure out how to do it. And, you know, even if it didn't work, at least I went to MIT, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not the worst place to kind of, to, uh, to land. And so EcoVent, you know, we started it there. I used um, what we now teach as the 24 steps of disciplined entrepreneurship, um, used the framework, built the company, built a team. They motivated them. They were geniuses. They all could have done whatever they wanted, you know, worked anywhere. But they decided because of the mission, this is amazing. We got to do this. And ultimately, the, we raised money, we built a product, and um, we ran out of money, right? And I was CEO, and I would say that my biggest learning is you have to treat capital in the bank like oxygen and that you're, you're like a, a diver, right? And your job as a founder, as a founding team is to dive as deep as possible, to uncover the best stuff, right? But you have mm-hmm. to be cognizant of the air. If you run out of air, right, you die. Now, if you stay close to the surface, you're fine, right? You can just surface, but if you're trying to get deep and change, make big changes, um, you could die. And so 
as a CEO, I was in a CEO forum, you know, a bunch of other CEOs were in it and we would all get, and these, these were really deep, deep relationships and conversations. We would talk about everything, right? Um, and we would get together every quarter and really just dig deep into each other's companies and give advice. And John was, John, the CEO of Saluna was on that forum. And what mm -hmm. I learned when I was working in that forum, working with John is as a founder, as a CEO, I didn't listen to my gut fast enough. It ultimately mm -hmm. stops. It stops right there. You know, if I felt somebody needed to be uh, put on a performance plan or fired, it took me six months instead of three days or six weeks. Right. Ah, okay. Um, and a lot of these decisions are not big, gigantor decisions that you just, you look back, you're like, oh, that's the one. It's, it's a thousand decisions that you make slower than you should, right? Even though the decision you make is right, it takes longer than it should. And ultimately what happened was, you know, um, we were in the middle of negotiating a new round of financing and the investor that was investing in us was a strategic company. They were not a venture capital firm or, or you know, somebody who has done this a dozen times before. They were mm -hmm. a large company. And so, you know, they, they treated the deal like a large company would. Now we had venture capital people on the board, but the lead investor was the strategic. And, you know, ultimately as corporations do, sometimes they change their mind at the last minute. And that's exactly what happened here. We negotiated an extension bridge round, a series A2, we would call it. And uh, it was going to be $4 million. And literally the, the Wednesday before I was supposed to get the check, mm -hmm. um, uh, Friday I was supposed to get the check and I got an email on Wednesday saying the check wouldn't be coming. And so <laughs> not exactly an email you want to get from your head investor. I, could, I didn't even get a phone call. It was really not funny, wow. sad. It goes to show you just how hard this job can be. And then um, for everybody involved, it's not an easy call for an investor to make, right? So right. I get it. Um, and so Ecovent taught me to trust my team, think and move very fast. And also remember one thing, when you are building a new company, when you're trying to build a new anything, right, and change the way the world works, um, there's going to be chaos and external factors that drastically ability your uh drastically influence your ability to execute right and if you don't see them and pivot quickly and help your team you know kind of see the floors through the trees and know what to do next uh you can end up in a lot of trouble watching john execute i mean we all executing but watching john as a, as a ceo i used to see him every quarter for th you know three days fine i see him every day now <laughs> and we've gone through everything together since 2017, right? Mm. Seeing the way this man operates has blown my mind. And I know for a fact if Ecovent was running and I, if there was this version of Dip running it, um, the outcome would have been much different. You know, so many things to unpack here. First, let's start with Ecovent. I actually know a gentleman here locally in Dallas that exited very well from a very similar company. Timing is so important in entrepreneurship. So he had a very similar product targeted specifically for commercial application. So, so think, think restaurants, think large warehouses. You know, you said a word there in between regarding the balance of airflow in a building. Now, in a house, you know, a vent being closed or stuck or utilized to its best performance, it's a nominal 
cost on your utilities. When you have a 100,000 square foot warehouse or a quick service restaurant where your heating and utilities are a significant portion of your expenses, a vent that's closed or stuck or inoperable is very, very expensive. And Was so, it 76F by chance? No, it wasn't 76F. Um, it's, a great, it's a great. Targeting that demographic was genius. And the first time I met him and he explained it to me, it was such an aha moment. You have a 100,000 square foot warehouse. You don't know which vents are working and not correctly. And so if you have a vent that's stuck, and so he created this dashboard and he put sensors and vents, et cetera. Same thing it. with restaurants. I love and it. And he, he did very well for himself. The other part is timing. You know, this was 2016. Now with all the green building initiatives, I think a company like Ecovent, I'm sure there are many derivatives out there today, especially with LEED, et cetera, that are going to be successful almost doing the identical perhaps product or process that you were doing at Ecovent. I bet you could take all the advertisements and marketing materials, you know, just update them. This was 2013, right? 2014 when Ecovent was really cranking. And I'll tell you what, when it comes to timing, Raj, before I signed the Series A, mm-hmm. I could have sold the company. <laughs> and I could... <laughs> like, and I'm not saying I had an offer like in my hands, but right. I had multiple people come to me and say, there's an opportunity here to go. Two different strategic companies were, were circling. And, um, you know, I, t- I actually talked to the founders about it. We all had numbers in our head. Mm-hmm. what it would take for us to walk away that we determined before we before we go into financing or anything, right? We write these numbers down for ourselves. And uh, I mean, I think knowing now what I know, that knowing how hard it is really mm-hmm. and getting an easy win and putting a lot of money in everyone's pocket <laughs> pretty early, Yep, maybe it would have been a different call, right? Maybe that was the right move where the market was. Again, it's Absolutely. really, it's really, it could be damaging. Like, at this point, it's really healing and I'm learning. But up until, I don't know, it took me a while to kind of get healthy enough to really go back into that that situation and try and pull out the deeper learnings, you know? Um, and, and I think that's where we're at now. We're reflecting on it as more about learning than it is painful, you know? And uh, that's Absolutely. Really and the last piece is that, you know, the piece you talked about cash. So I had my own startup 2014 through 17, sold it in 17. Oh, but the idea of balancing cash... I remember maybe it wasn't the best thing to do, but every Friday afternoon I would sit and reconcile and not the best way to go into a weekend, but to your point, you know, the runway is oxygen. It's, it's your job as the CEO, right? Absolutely. As the it's a, that's, that's a really nice practice that you had. Nice job. Right? That's great. <laughs> I appreciate it. Does, it. it does hit your mental health, I'm sure, but <laughs> it's, it, it, it does probably thank you for it, even though they, they didn't know, you know. Yep. Uh, probably the influence it had on your mental health. Absolutely. Uh, it's hard. It's so hard, right? Like, uh, that's what makes it fun, though. I agree. Now, I'm going to make a hard right turn to Saluna here. You mentioned something earlier. You said the word envelope regarding a building. And I really want to dig into the details here and as nitty gritty, as technical as we need to be, because I think this conversation we're going to have regarding data centers. It needs to be had and the public needs to be aware. And I'm going to give a real quick reason before you go into the technical aspects of data centers. What I've tried to convey to people in this transition to green and the movement is that there's a lot that we could be doing without realizing to help this transition. And one of the things I always come back to is 
email, spam email. I know this might sound off track, but I think people forget that every time you send an email or a message, it's taking compute somewhere. So something is happening. There's a carbon footprint related to it. Bill Gates said at one time, I believe, at least what I've read, is that if we could, if we were charged just one cent for every email that was sent, it would significantly significantly cut down on our carbon footprint. There'll be less spam email. People would think more about it. And I'm saying that because all these emails take place within this data center environment, with this server environment. So with that said, I want you to go from an outside in, you know, start from the envelope, get to the racks, and tell us as much as you can about data centers, and then we'll kind of talk about the sustainability aspect. Okay, got it. Uh, that's very interesting on the emails. I remember when they were trying to pass a tax on email um, a long time ago. Uh, yes, I would say that it's really important to realize that compute has become very convenient because that's how you make money. It's how you get people to use it, right? But mm -hmm. that convenience comes at a massive cost. When I drag a 60 megabyte PowerPoint file into an email and that gets sent to someone, when I could have just right-clicked on that file and said, make Dropbox link and send the link, mm -hmm. that one difference, think about the influence it has. Now servers are shipping 50 megabytes of data versus 50 kilobytes, right? They're storing it on redundant servers on different networks across the world, and they're making it available to other accounts, right? So that's just, and nobody thinks, right? Nobody thinks to make a, a large file, a power a PDF. Not anymore, because bandwidth is crazy. So- right. This all happens in data centers, like you said, right? And I was new to the data center world when I, right? But I'm not new to the system of converting energy into information. That I'm not new to. That's exactly what a data center does. And that's what a radar system does, right? Which is what I spent my career doing at Lockheed. And so what happens is if, if you look at a current data center, right? These data centers are designed to deliver content in real time very fast right? They're designed to uh, stream video or, or uh, you know, share financial information or, you know, uh, watch, uh, watch like your house <laughs> remotely, right? These are things that are latency intensive and soon it'll be gaming. Gaming's out there. It's just not awesome yet, but it'll get there. And so when you look at the data centers that are out there and you look at the DNA of these companies, you look at the way that they're structured, it's all about being close to people being near massive amounts of internet, massive amounts of water. Um, and as a result, you have these buildings that are that are designed with that in mind, right? They're dense, they have to be quiet. And again, they're in population centers, so you're literally taking away from the local population. Energy and water, you know, always go to the data center before they go to the people. If energy becomes scarce, the data center is gonna get it first. If water becomes scarce, the data center is going to get it first because they pay more for those things, right? So when you look at now the advent of Gen AI, now when you look at data centers and you look at what it's done, it's still a genius thing because now people aren't running multiple computers at home as much. Most people have a laptop and a phone and the rest of stuff happens on the cloud, right? Mm -hmm. So overall per person, it's more efficient, but per person, the number of compute cycles is going way up, right? And also the right. middle class worldwide is growing. Oh, in some countries, it's growing exponentially. And any people, when they go from low class to middle class, uh, they use more compute, they use more energy. So what's happening is uh, these data centers are growing at an insane pace. But 
there's also a new type of compute that isn't necessarily as real-time sensitive, right? Gen AI, for example. Now, if I'm doing inferencing that requires real-time, really fast responses, okay, I get it. You can use a data center that's close to people. But most things, you're okay with a 10 millisecond delay. You won't even recognize it as a, right? And so, and in many cases, you won't even, the, the work you're doing takes longer than the delay anyway, way longer. Like when I'm using mid-journey, it takes, you know, 10, 15 seconds for the picture to, to get generated. And so what difference does it make if it's 15 seconds or 15 seconds plus 10 milliseconds, right? But well, it makes let's a for a huge moment, difference in the data center. Let's for a moment take this conversation. This conversation is being uploaded to the cloud from your location to my location, and I'll be retrieving it here, you know, 15, 20 minutes after the conversation. Amazing, right? And there'll be transcriptions. There'll be all kinds of analysis done on it, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I'm talking about, and it's so convenient. And even if you don't use, like how many times do you record a Zoom call and never watch it again? But right. you have it, right? Uh, or you might just read the transcription. So all of these things, right, are being done in data centers that exist already because those data centers exist and it's convenient. The problem is these data centers are destroying the planet. They present a baseload on the grid, which means they're always on. They suck as much energy as they need, no matter what. And they consume an insane amount of water. Okay. And the reason they do that is... Now, just okay. let, let's specify here. Fresh water, recycled water, where is this water coming from? The water is coming from usually the city, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Uh, whether it's fresh or recycled is not, I mean, that's, that's a good question. Like it's all fresh and it's filtered, right? Mm -hmm. So it's clean drinking water. And for those that don't quite understand the architecture, explain how the water is helping cooling the, the servers. Oh, great question, Raj. Thanks for, thanks for bringing that up. So here's the deal. Okay. Data centers are measured in efficiency using something called PUE. Power usage effectiveness, okay? And what that means mm -hmm. is, is how efficient is the data center at delivering power from the grid to the computer? A 1.0 PUE is perfect. It means that 100 watts enters the site, 100 watts is delivered to the computer. Zero watts are used for anything else, okay? A 1.05 means 105 watts enters the site and 100 watts gets to the computer, which means five watts are used for other things. In this case, cooling, lighting, right? So data centers have been measured on PUE and they need to lower that number to one. So how do you do it? If you use air conditioning to cool the buildings, your PUE goes to 1.3. That's how much energy it takes to cool computers, okay? About 30%, right? If you use air conditioning. But if you heat water and you just evaporate the water, you literally take this water and put it on cooling towers, which is Think of it like a drip tower, and you just let the planet evaporate that water. You don't have to count that evaporation or that water use against your PUE. And it's, it's, it's as effective as removing the heat. So what these data centers do is they run hot, cold water into the site. They let the computers heat that water up. And then that water goes into cooling towers and gets evaporated. And... Because that water use isn't considered in the PUE calculation, these data centers are optimizing for PUE at the expense of evaporating water. And that consumes the water. Once you evaporate it, it's gone, right? Now, what we'll do is we'll take that water that gets hot 
and we will chill it, recirculate it, right? That will increase our PUE, but it will consume zero gallons of water. And to give you a sense of how much water data centers use, um, there's a professor, uh, I forget his name. I, I, it's, it's, it's Professor Wren. I forget his first name. Uh, well, I know his name, but I don't know how to pronounce it well. Uh, <laughs> but it's Professor Wren, and he wrote a paper, on, and I'll give you the name. Uh, he wrote a paper on the water consumption of AI. And in the paper, he basically shows that if you interact with ChatGPT for 20 prompts with less than, I think, 50 words or something, it consumes mm -hmm. 16 ounces of water. Oh, my word. Now, that's just AI. Everything consumes water. Every single data center right now. Well, some of the ones in maybe the Iceland or like, you know, places like that. Right. Uh, that get automatically cold air for free don't. But for the most part, if you're using Twitter, if you're using YouTube, if you're using TikTok, Netflix, anything, and you live in a non if you don't live in the desert, you don't live in the, well, desert's even worse. But say I'm living in, in Flint, Michigan, right? There's a data center around there getting clean water, but the people aren't. <laughs> It's, 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 it's so, so sad. So that's why, you know, the new architecture is we've built it where we said, forget about every requirement for real time. And let's talk about requirements for batch oriented processing and build a data center around that. Uh, you end up with an architecture that looks like ours and one that consumes no water and has record breaking PUE. And that's the game plan, right? It's so to make that a data center available to the world. So there's a rumor out there, Maestro operating system, 1.01 PUE. That's true. And that was in the middle of summer. <laughs> <laughs> in, the, in the middle of summer where, though? Let's be specific. Texas. <laughs> Rural Texas. But by the way, record-breaking heat. Surprise, surprise. I live here. You know? So how did you accomplish that? So the way we accomplish that is a couple of things, right? Number one is we run our computers hotter. And by the way... Some data center companies like Equinix are starting to do this. That's a whole different discussion, but chip core temperatures on average are going up, which means you'll be able to run servers hotter. But so we run our computers a little bit hotter and then we just move a lot of air and we move it very efficiently. And then the other thing we do is if you look at the layout of our buildings, um, they're designed in kind of this diamond architecture. And what that allows is the hot air that's coming out of the uh, exhaust of each building to be protected from prevailing winds. And why that matters is A, we're in a wind farm, and B, it allows that air to get really, to rise, right? Hot air rises. So it gives that air time to rise up into the atmosphere so it doesn't get recirculated back into the building, right? And so essentially, we bring ambient air in, we filter it, it goes through the miners, goes through the most, or event and, and GPU servers, and then it goes out of the back through highly efficient, massive, uh, you know, belt-driven um, fans. And, and then basically physics and the design of the buildings takes care of the rest. Some of the things we did is we made um, our filter area very large um, using these massive louvers. And the reason is, again, the slower the airflow through the buildings, the more efficient the system. So when you walk into our buildings, even though we're moving, you know, for each megawatt of compute, you know, 300,000 plus CFM of air, um, it just feels like a nice summer breeze in there, right? So keeping the air, even though we're moving a ton of air, since there's no blockage, it kind of moves slowly. 
And as a result, it's more efficient for all of the fans. And it's also more efficient for the filters because if air is moving slower, it picks up less debris. You see? So it's it's just it's just a bunch of design things all put together. But the reason is, is because you think of the system as a whole, right? And that's what we did at Lockheed Martin. It's how we were trained as engineers. Me and uh, my VP of engineering. Uh, by the way, the VP of engineering here was my CTO at, at, and co-founder at Ecovent. And we worked together oh, a lot. Brilliant. Yeah. So we've worked together, you know, since 2004. And, um, you know, efficiency is in your DNA if you come from the military complex. You know, if you're building, if you're building like radar systems or missiles or anything like that, efficiency is the name of the game. Because that's how you that's how you make everything work. So that's I how have to work. ask: Do you have sensors on the louvers? Ah, that's a great question. It it is an upgrade. It's uh, that's one of our uh, you know, uh, on our product roadmap to add sensors on the louvers. We do have sensors in like the building. I feel like second life for EcoVent. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, we will be adding very similar sensors that we used um, in EcoVent. Uh, to just exactly measure the building envelope. The good news is all of our computers and computer equipment, networking equipment, all of it has temperature. So we already have a ton of sensors um, built in, but we will be adding more uh, as we upgrade. It's a great question. Now, I did watch the video for Project Sophie, I believe, and I did admire the layout. How did the company come up with the design for that? Well, um, basically... It worked by developing good models, right? So we had a data center running, Project Edith, on the West Coast. It was our first one. And we did a lot of measurements of computers, you know, like per computer, probably 20 to, well, some had 20, some had 15 measurements, right? And we were able to take those measurements and put them into massive computer models um, and model buildings entirely um, without building anything. Again, very similar to the way we used to model uh, removing heat from radar systems, right? You have to kind of understand the building blocks and then put the building blocks together to build a model. Although, I mean, it's very easy to make a highly complicated model, but then you'd need a supercomputer to, to run it. And so what we did was we basically developed so in parallel to developing the model you do a trade study right and what you do is you say okay what are the requirements the requirements are to run these computers to maximize efficiency to make it flexible so you could change what the computers are um, deliver lots of power per rack way more power than existing data centers had considered you know hundreds of kilowatts per rack we can deliver um, and we wanted it to be easy to construct and easy to operate uh, in remote areas. So you write those requirements down and then you start from scratch. And we tested different fan architectures, different building layouts, all different kinds of building sizes. And, you know, it's just like any other engineering project. You kind of start with a whiteboard and you sketch it out, you know, PowerPoint it, just do things like just top level physics calculations, mm -hmm. right? And then you use the model to kind of help you fine tune it. So we evaluated massive high pressure fans versus small fans versus the ones we picked. We evaluated different filter architectures, different building designs, different building layouts. Like we had some like really neat building layouts, right? And our models were designed in such a way that we could do quick answers in a day. 
And then we mm-hmm. could do the fine tune stuff in a weekend, right? And uh, that's how we did it. And we did all of that, you know, basically during COVID. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, but me and Nick had worked together forever, so we we've we've been through this this rodeo before. Now I'm just lucky he joined us uh, when I went calling. <laughs> there you go. You said something earlier, which I want to double down on, just in case people haven't listened to John's episode. You mentioned you're located near a wind farm. Why and why is that important? Yes, this is the biggest thing, right? So Saluna was founded because there was a massive wind farm in Morocco, right, that never got built. And this wind farm could have been one of the most abundant on the planet, and it never got built because there was no grid connection. You couldn't sell the energy, right? So the concept was connect a Bitcoin farm to the wind farm, and then the grid will come. And then once the grid comes, you could take the Bitcoin and move it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a new way of financing green energy. Co- and we were building that project, things were moving along, and then COVID came along. And uh, it was really hard to do business overseas during COVID. So we said, let's call American wind farms and see what's going on here. Primary market research, right? And uh, we just started calling everybody in the green energy space saying, hey, what kind of pain are you dealing with? Because we're not green energy experts, right? We're learning everything. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was we learned about this problem called curtailment. And what happens is when a grid, when a wind farm connects to the grid, right, they have to sell the energy to the grid in real time. They can't store the energy and give it to the grid later. And so in places like Texas, the grid price varies based on a bidding architecture and real-time demand and all kinds of other things. And so what happens is if you, a lot of wind farms, they can't always sell all the energy they make because the grid can't, the grid doesn't need it. There's no demand. And so they have to turn the wind farm off. And this is called curtailment, right? And the more wind farms that get put on the grid, the more this problem becomes for all the wind farms, right? Tragedy of the common situation type thing. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is, um, we start calling these wind farms and they say curtailment's a massive issue. And we say, well, what if we connect a data center to your wind farm and we'll spin that data center on and off based on whether or not your energy is, uh, is, is utilized or not. If the grid needs it, we'll turn off. If the grid doesn't need it and you have lots of excess, we'll consume it. And that's what we spent the last couple of years building. It's um, not just the technology to connect to the Texas grid and read all the grid telemetry and do all the math. And then, but you got to make everybody comfortable, right? The electrical co-ops, the wind farm operators, the investors on, on the wind farms, the, the ERCOT grid themselves. So everybody has to be fully read into what's going on. And then on top of all of that, you need legal agreements that make all of this stuff legal. So we spent the last couple of years getting all of that done. And, uh, I can't be more proud. Dorothy's doing it. Five years ago, six years ago, we were sitting in a conference room talking about making this work in Morocco and saying, this is going to be the future of green energy, co-locating a data center. And you know, now we've done it at Dorothy, Project Dorothy. There's a wind farm that's dealing with massive amounts of curtailment. We're consuming all that energy and returning that revenue to the wind farm. And what's amazing about this is this physical problem of wind being abundant when the grid doesn't need energy is not going to go away. The wind is windier at night. It's windier when it's cold. So what happens is this situation is going to be everywhere. And now the investors are starting to see that 
when they sign up, see what happens is when I'm building a new wind farm, I, I don't size it based on how much wind is available. I size it based on what the grid will accept. But now there's, and now they added batteries to that equation, right? And so now you'll start to see green energy sites get priced with batteries. And as a result, the wind farms are bigger because the battery can kind of smooth, smooth this, uh, this supply, the supply curve. A but if you co-locate a data center, you can make these wind farms 10, 20, 30, 40 times bigger. You see? Because the data centers, the demand for AI compute is unlike anything we've ever seen. Everybody in the industry will tell you they've never seen anything like this. And it's only going to get more and more power hungry, right? And so if you, if you use that power hunger as a catalyst for the demand that green energy needs to get scale, you can decouple the size of green energy from the grid. And then once the grid is ready to get upgraded, the green energy is already built. And just to close that investor revenue loop, how does Saluna generate revenue? Ah, so Saluna generates revenue by, um, well, do you mean how do we generate it for ourselves or how do we generate it for the uh, our partners? For yourself. Okay. So for ourselves, you know, we get energy cheap and we have a data center, right? So we fill the data centers with our computers and... It's Bitcoin miners, or now we're switching over to, uh, we're going into our phase two of our business, which is the AI space, right? We'll fill it with GPU servers, and then you make profit on that, right? And we'll make more profit because we have really good energy pricing and really good efficiency, right? For the reasons that we've talked about. Um, well, the energy prices are really good because, again, we're co-located with the wind. Now, see... If you do that, if you co-locate with the wind and you get the energy price low, you can run your own computers and you can make money. The second way you can do it is you can offer up this space to other people that have computers and who need a place to plug those computers in. And that's so co-locating? Co-locating, exactly, exactly. So that's our business model on the revenue side, right? We co-lo and we, uh, we, uh, ho we have our own equipment. And then also... There are these things called ancillary services, right? Where you can provide demand response services. There's programs for the grid where you can, you know, say to the grid, hey, you know, when it like when it's really bad, you can tell us to turn off. But to do that, you got to pay us this amount of money, those type of programs, right? Mm -hmm. we, we are eligible for all of those because of our control architecture and our control system. And so, you know, we'll start evaluating those and, and uh, start executing on strategies for uh, ancillary services. So that'll be another revenue. Now, the summer down here in Texas sounds like smooth learning, but what were some of the challenges you encountered? Oh, smooth learning. Uh, Rod, you're an engineer, right? So uh... No, I'm not. That's the... Oh, you're not? <laughs> I'm just oh. a, I'm, well, I'm just a, a curious... Yeah. I'm just a curious bugger, that's why. <laughs> no, well, you know as a founder, when you're building something new... Uh, it's never smooth, right? Um, and that's okay. Nope. Uh, Saluna, you know, we Dorothy had to work from day one because of the architecture of the PPA and the services we're providing to the grid and the wind farm. If power purchase agreement. Of, what's that? Yeah, the power purchase agreement. Exactly. So when we decide, when all of this stuff that we talked about, co-locating with the wind farm, purchasing power and all of that, that all gets written up into a set of agreements called the PPA. There's a bunch of other agreements as well. Mm -hmm. But- Basically, if we if we violate those, it's big big problems. <laughs> you know, not necessarily money wise, sure, but also reputationally, right? So what Saluna did was we built an entire digital twin, 
We call it Mini Maestro. It's on the cloud. And again, at Lockheed, we built simulators for all of our systems, right? So we kind of have a sense of how to do this already without it becoming this crazy complicated task. And we started it simple. And then as our data centers ran, we started making our simulator more and more like the real thing, right? Like, for example, you might send a command to a computer and one out of every 50 times you send that command, it might get ignored, right? If you don't simulate that on the, on the cloud, then there's going to be deep level bugs that you won't be able to get, right? Because those bugs will only show up when these weird one out of 50 things coincide, right? When you have a hot thousand moving pieces. So our simulator, Mini Maestro, has allowed... And by the way, when we went live at Dorothy, we had to change our algorithm uh, a few times. And by the way, that was a surprise not only to us, but also our partners. So we knew that once we went live, we would have to tweak our algorithm because we were we were all... Everybody in the game, uh, the grid people, the wind people, and us, uh, were all learning this for the first time, figuring out how to do this. So when we went live, there were little things that we had to switch our algorithm, change some th things around, and we were able to do all of that on the cloud first, right? So that's what helped it become smooth. Uh, was that we had simulated a lot of this, built a lot of this offsite, tested it all. I would say that the things that really uh, caused issues were bugs that you don't see until you get to scale. Right? Oh, okay. So, you know, you talk to people who have uh, data centers and you say, how many servers do you have? And they say 5,000. And you're like, okay, well, we have bugs that didn't show up until we, we turned on 20,000. And there was only a couple of people we knew who we could call and say, hey, did you see any of these bugs <laughs> at 20,000? And there were these weird things like, you know, weird th firmware bugs that exist on, on very specific hardware, you know, that normally you'd never see as a normal person. But since we have 20,000 devices, you start to hit these weird bugs. And so those are the things that really um, were the learnings. It's, this was the first time we had 50 megawatts, right? being fully automated using grid telemetry. So just seeing how the system reacted to it and then squashing the bugs as they came out um, has been fantastic. It's been very, very, very uh, challenging in the sense that it's been a lot of, uh, you know, the, when bugs occur, they don't necessarily occur from like nine to five central tight. <laughs> <So> <laughs> there's a high degree of anxiety uh, for everybody because you never know when it's going to hit. And we have an amazing operations team down there uh, who, unfortunately, when something happens on the technical side, they're the ones who have to go on site and help help kind of be the hands, right? And we have 24-7 people on the site, of course, but sometimes you need uh, more technical people. And so just having a really strong team and having the ability to test a lot of this stuff online. Plus, we started in Kentucky, so we were able to use that as a test bed as well, um, really helped us kind of do this in a very disciplined way. And we're fully ramped. I, I, I show this dashboard off to people because I, I still can't believe it. You can literally see a 50 megawatt load get turned on and off automatically based on what's happening on the Texas grid. And we're making the wind farm more money. I like, I have trouble not giggling thinking about it. Like it's well, just- Well, I think I saw it in one of your videos where everything turned green. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the two-bit Da Vinci one, right? Yes, uh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it just- Seeing it work, it, it just, it works. It turns out physics is right, Raj, right? And so. <laughs> and, and, and to your point about the digital twin, I mean, now, you know, with the capability to build a 
digital representation of something you're building physically and then take the representation to scale, the rough analogy I draw is that if you're driving 30 miles an hour, the tread in the tire doesn't matter as much, but 150 is a different conversation. That's a great analogy. I really like that analogy a lot. That's exactly it, right? You're moving really fast and failures are catastrophic. <laughs> so you got to keep an eye on everything. And, uh, you know, our new projects coming, they're not the exact same grid people. They're not the exact same uh, APIs, right? They're not the same uh, logic streams. So being able to work with the, the grid operators down there and the partners down there and uh, test everything on the, on the simulator, again, it gives confidence not only to our engineering team, but everybody involved. Because you have to remember, right, we're, we're in the middle of nowhere. So we're working with, we're working with electrical co-ops that have to deliver power to farmers. And they might have a 600 square mile region, but like 15 farms, right? right. So they have these massive farms. And if we put a massive load on there and like our 50 megawatt load, like is way bigger than these farms use, right? And so they, for them to say, wow, uh, we believe that Saluda can do this without destroying our infrastructure and, and putting our farmers at risk took a lot of relationship, you know, and it also took a lot of mutual education. We have to learn about their business. They have to learn about our software and all of this stuff, the simulators, you know, these dashboards, our, our test beds um, and our contracts and the way that we communicate these things are what has helped us build those relationships, right? And that's really what this is all about, is building relationships with communities who um, don't necessarily always have the resources to get what they need, right? Because they don't have a massive population. Think of, think of countries in the tropics, right? Between the two tropics. Mm -hmm. They have massive amounts of green energy available to them, but they have no industry or consumption or enough population to consume it so it never gets built. So instead, they slowly drip money out of the economy buying oil. I'm also thinking on the other side of the equation with your service level agreements to the people you're providing compute for also. Well, that, see, that's the, that's the fun part because with a hybrid site with crypto and uh, AI, what you're able to do is put the AI on baseload, which essentially stays on, mm -hmm. right? And you use the Bitcoin and the crypto side to turn on and off. And what happens is 90% of the energy for the AI side gets handled by the wind farm, right? Um, and then the 10% the that the wind farm can't supply, you can purchase that from the grid, right? But you purchase it at the, at the grid pricing. But it's a very little amount of time, so it's not a big deal. And that's kind of the, the model, right? And then eventually, again, as you get bigger and bigger and bigger, you can start to offer discounted SLAs to people for data centers with lower uptime. You know, and for AI, it won't matter. It, it's amazing because months, right? So, like, who cares if it's <laughs> ninety-five or ninety-eight percent up? Who cares? Ninety-nine, right? And I think just looking out into the future, I just read a couple of days ago as I was doing research, is that we're estimating a twenty percent average growth rate for cloud computing over the next ten years, and to what that looks like from a infrastructure perspective, global footprint perspective, energy, water, I think the work that you're doing at Saluna really can play an integral part and perhaps 
alleviating, like you said, some of these challenges, especially around renewable energy. Exactly. You can use this insatiable need for energy as a catalyst for green energy scale because you can bring the demand to the source. That's always been the problem. Where it's windy aren't people. Look at look at uh, the Netherlands. Uh, not, uh, the Netherlands, um, basically where the wind farms are, is like so far <laughs> from their populations, you know? And so if you can bring massive demand, this 20% growth can be met with 20% growth of green. Absolutely. Now, when, while we're thinking about this 20% growth, I want to kind of round out the conversation with something we started with earlier. You know, we were talking about people sending emails and using cloud and, sorry, using emails and using communication, but let's drill it back to the individual. My opinion is that there should be some individual responsibility in this entire transition. What are some thoughts you have regarding how people utilize compute or perhaps could better utilize compute going forward? Well, the, I think the first thing is exactly like you said, is just making people aware, right? Like I grew up turning off the lights in every room because <laughs> each bulb consumed 100 watts, right? Well, that's that's because burned. you're the same background as I do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so the, right now people don't think, right? Mm-hmm. Like they'll just leave YouTube running, you know? Ah, yes. Who cares? What difference does it make? Whereas my and, kid does, she plays a game while watching YouTube in the background. Yeah, I, I mean, we all we all have multitasking, right? I'm listening to Spotify while I'm while I'm cranking on my work, right? It's fine. This is we shouldn't hold that people back from that. That's that's awesome. We need to make that stuff responsibly. So that's what I want people to really start thinking about. I want them to to hold companies accountable when they say ESG, not just on energy. But water, start, mm-hmm. start asking the questions around water. Start asking the questions about how green is green because a lot of these net zero quote unquote sites, all they do is they buy recs. They buy you know, credits from other places. But data centers destroy the local grid because they're considered baseload, right? Because mm-hmm. they can't ever go down, ever. So I want people to remember that just like cars, there used to be a, a, just a car, one car, right? And then they started making sports cars. And that's how data centers are. You're getting faster and faster in terms of latency, F1 cars, right? We need, a, we, need a, we need an F-150. We need a sport utility vehicle. That's what AI needs. And we want that third kind of data center to come out, one that is not as latency intensive, that's built on massive amounts of compute. And so if people start just understanding a little bit more about how the cloud works, um, I think that they will start holding their people, their cloud, call it stack, more accountable. And that would be cool. Like if I could, if I could say, hey, you know what? Disney Plus uses less carbon than, than Netflix. So I'm going to just go with Disney Plus. Uh, things like that. There's just, there's nothing. There's no data right now. There's, people have no idea. It's not they don't want to know. They just have no idea. There's no easy way to learn, right? Absolutely. Well, I hope we've shed some light on it. You know, earlier you said um, servers convert energy to information. I think that applies for humans too. We uh, convert energy to information. I hope this information is useful to people listening. Dip, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Best of luck with your continued journey with Saluna. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you so much, Raj. It's been a pleasure, man. Thank you. Thank you for listening. 
if you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.